What's happening, hardscapers? This is episode 71 of the How to Hardscape podcast, where we talk to you about how you can start and grow your hardscaping business. And today we're joined by Mark Bradley. He is the CEO of LMN, and we had him back on episode 12 to talk to you about LMN software and everything it can do for your business. But today we have him back on to discuss a wide range of topics regarding his landscaping business and how he grew it to be a $50 million business. So be sure to take notes throughout this episode to learn everything that he's got to offer here. And without further ado, here's our interview with Mark Bradley. Today, we're joined by Mark Bradley. He is the CEO of Element Software and was on episode 12 discussing the advantages of implementing that software into your landscaping business. And he actually started Element as a solution for his own business, a company he grew to become a $50 million landscaping company. And we're going to get to know more about what he accomplished there today on the show. Mark, thank you so much for joining us once again. Yeah, thanks for having me. Mark, let's get started to kind of get a background about your story and how you entered the the landscaping industry. Can you kind of give us a little bit of context in terms of, you know, how you entered the industry and what led you to starting your own business? It's kind of a, I guess, a somewhat typical story to, to start up. I, I, you know, through high school, I was doing some uh, landscape work with a, with a local landscape company and I, I started, um, selling cedar trees off of our uh, farm property and, uh, you know, started taking on some projects as I was kind of coming out of school and then actually decided to go and do um, an apprenticeship in the nuclear industry, um, which kind of led to uh, project management. And and then I just sort of uh, kind of turned back to landscaping. I just found uh, I wasn't really enjoying that indoor sort of, plant environment, I guess, working in, in nuclear and, and really wanted just to get back outside. And then that led me to uh, start a landscape company. So with starting a landscape company and, you know, diving into this, what, let, let's start with, you know, what your landscaping business, what vision you had for your landscaping business. When you first started, did you already decide that, you know, you were going to grow this to be a multi-million dollar business? Or was this something that maybe at first you were thinking of just keeping it small? Where was your mindset at in terms of building this business? So first off, I I, I quit a job that was was paying about 175000 a year. So I, I definitely needed to, to, you know, scale the landscape company up considerably to replace that wage and, and then, um, you know, obviously uh, earn some company profit and, and, and whatnot along the way. So there was, there was, I guess, a plan to, 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 to sort of grow the company. But I always thought, you know, maybe 10 or 15 employees and, you know, uh, maybe, two to three million in sales. I, I think that was kind of the vision I had. Um, you know, I would set out to kind of um, improve work-life balance and, and maybe work a little less by owning my own company. And, <laughs> and you know, if, if you asked my, uh, my father, he would, he would probably chuckle and say that I started a landscape business so I could ski more in the winter and uh, that never actually happened. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, I mean, in in I think I started out with a with a a vision to have a sizable company for sure. Gotcha. So then, starting your business, 
how did you identify those services that you were going to go straight into with your business? Uh, did, did you take a look at the market around you? Did you try to identify different niches that your business could fit in? Or was this basically based off experience that you knew that this is what you were going to do when you started your business? I think it was a pretty unsophisticated approach. I, I mean, I, I definitely um, entered the business, you know, much like you know, many others, you know, pickup truck and a wheelbarrow and, uh, and a good work ethic. So I don't think I did a, you know, a, a true market analysis or anything, um, that would, would lead me to do anything calculated. It was really just, you know, I felt that there was a demand. I, I tested the waters a little bit while I still had my day job and, um, started out with, some snow plowing and maintenance, but predominantly um, landscape installation. So I was always um, really interested in uh, carpentry and stonework and planting. And, and so we, you know, were really taking project work on from day one. So um, I, I think the, the, the sort of driving force for me was probably the creative outlet of landscaping. I really enjoyed doing the work and enjoyed seeing the projects come together. And, and, and I think for that reason, I always kind of gravitated toward the design build um, aspect of the, of the business. Looking back on that, if, if somebody was thinking of starting their own business today, would you recommend them to take a look at their market and try to, you know, strategically enter the market? Or would you just say, you know what, get into the market, you start your business, get into doing what you love to do, and then kind of adjust your business, pivot your business in terms of what's available for your business? Yeah, I, I mean, sitting where I am today with the experience that I that I was able to get it from the industry, I would definitely say that it um, the business the industry has evolved, and I believe that it's evolved into a, a business that is probably more suitable um, with a narrower list of services. Um, I think, you know, back in the 60s and 70s when landscapers were, you know, becoming, a, you know, a, an organized industry, there was, you know, kind of if it was outside, it was for a landscaper. And, and, and you know, in the 30 or 40 years um, leading up to, you know, the, the turn of the century, I think there was there was, you know, a lot of generalists. But I, I see now that the business has gotten more complex, the, the design features, the products that are available, the, the varied uh, list of services. I think it's too much for, for to, to fall under one small business. And, and what I see happen a lot is, you know, contractors try to do everything as a small business and you need too many tools, too many um, uh, specialists on staff. And, and as a result, I just feel that you know, companies aren't profitable because they can't possibly be efficient at everything. So um, specializing allows you to get the right equipment, the right training for your staff, the right pricing metrics in place, allows you to develop an efficient system to get the work done. And, and I think that ends with a much better result. And quite frankly, I learned that the hard way over the years, you know, scaling up a business the way I did. We 
we dipped our toes in far too many things and, and learned lots of tough lessons along the way. It, it always looks easier, you know, when your sub trade is doing work for you. And, and so naturally you think, well, we could just do that ourselves. And sure enough, you know, when your job costs a lot of those varied services, um, using in-house labor, it, it rarely works out to be uh, as good as it appears to be. With your business, as it's growing, uh, can we get into the kind of the evolution of, say, when you first started, uh, where was the majority of your leads coming as opposed to when did you really start to hit your stride in your business where, you know, you're getting all these referrals from uh you're getting referrals, you're getting word of mouth referrals and you, and you feel that's that your business has hit your stride. I know it's been a, a long time, uh, a while, but where, where did you kind of start to see the, that your business was really hitting its stride? It happened very quickly. So I, I actually did a million in revenue in my first year. So the business blew up. Um, I rented a storefront and started a design studio with sort of a small garden center element. Um, and almost immediately we were, you know, overbooked and I was already looking for sub trades to help out with uh, masonry work and carpentry work and that kind of thing. So we were incredibly busy um, almost immediately. Um, I feel like it was probably two or three years later when I sort of got to the point where I had a very defined kind of project size that I was willing to to take on. And, and then I sort of adjusted my marketing and um, my overall strategy to, to take on larger residential design build projects. Um, prior to that, those first few years, I, I feel like I, you know, had a fear of saying no. And, and I think I sort of ran in any direction when the phone rang and, and met with, you know, everybody who asked for a, for a quote or, or, you know, a sales meeting. And, and at the end of the day, I just feel like I, I, it took me a few years to learn how to say no and how to screen customers and, and how to really identify what the market was going to be that we were servicing. And, and that for, for me became, you know, by year three project sizes of, of nothing less than 50,000 and um, had to have a design, they had to pay for design. And, and we really sort of just stuck to that. And, and over the years that, that project value evolved to the point where, you know, we really didn't do projects um, for new customers that were less than, than 250,000. We were sort of always doing, you know, backyard getaways and, and, and we knew what those sort of budgeted out as. And, and so just kind of adjusted um, who we were marketing to and how we were getting the business. But for the most part, you know, referrals are really how you grow the business in the, in the design build world. You know, people have uh, their landscaping done and they get their, their friends to come over and visit and, and they want a project done or the neighbors notice you. And so I, I've always felt that as your business evolves, if you sort of focus on one type of work, it just sort of keeps coming. Um, it's that sort of, if you build it, they will come, I guess, my mindset. 
and I can definitely see like having a store a storefront really works in your favor to draw those types of customers into your business because uh, that definitely sets you apart from many people in in I, I assume your area. Just for a little bit of context for our audience, what year did you start your business? Uh, I started in '97 um, in downtown Toronto and uh, only kept that storefront for, for actually two years. And, and then I found that um, we needed a lot more space. We needed to, to be in more of an industrial park area. So I, I, I sort of moved and uh, still created a design studio in that, in that uh, industrial space and, and just built out a much larger shop and, and yard and whatnot to support the, the business activities. So since then, a lot has changed in terms of marketing a business. Um, I, I mean, I can definitely see uh, having a physical space for your customers to come and, and meet you in person was something extremely important back then. Nowadays, do you still see that as something uh, as important as we move into more of an online world, would you still suggest that people kind of work towards building that space where they can meet their customers in a professional environment? Yeah, I, I really do. Um, if you're going to try to scale up in the design build aspect of the business, I think it's super important to create a design studio with, you know, sort of a showroom feel to it. And, and the reason for that. When you're asking somebody to invest um, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars um, in their home and sort of trust you to be the advisor, I just feel that that it's a, a sizable enough purchase that they should um, have a, a location to come and meet and discuss designs, look at samples, um, get a sense of your business. I, I think a lot of trust is, is gained in that sort of interaction. And I think it just creates a more efficient approach for you as a contractor to be able to um, have your client in rather than hauling, you know, lots of samples and color boards and, and uh, pictures and, and things like that. I, I really think that there's a, there's a value to that sort of physical um, interaction. Getting into your, your business's growth over the time, at what stages did you really experience these growing pains or these hurdles that you'd have to overcome as, as a business owner? Was this something that was uh, continuous or was this something that you got to a certain stage in your business growth where you got hit with a hurdle that you had to overcome and then grew a little bit more and then experienced another hurdle? What is that like when growing your business the way you have? <laughs> um, I often get this um, question when I'm when I'm speaking at conferences, and and I always try to be as honest as possible. If if anybody ever tells you that they found a point in operating a, a landscape company where the where the hurdles ended, then then you got to kind of question the, uh, <laughs> the 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 validity of what they're saying. I just feel that. Even if you plateau or if you grow, that there's always going to be these these new hurdles, and you know, it kind of goes without saying, but most are people related. So, you know, you're going to have um, turnover. You're going to have uh, different needs for staff and skills as the business evolves, particularly if you're scaling up. Um, 
So that that hurdle never goes away. And that's always the most important one, I think, for a, for a business owner to focus on, because, you know, before anything um, can happen, you need the right people on the on the team. And then, you know, part two is staying ahead of technology, staying ahead of um, uh, the customer um, experience uh, aspect of the business. All of these things will always require a lot of attention and a lot of sort of, you know, turning of the dials to, to get better and better. And, you know, whether it's marketing or sales or operations, uh, nothing ever stays the same. Even if you're not growing revenue, you should be trying to grow profit. Um, so whether you're focused on the top line revenue or the bottom line profit, there's always room for improvement. And, and I've always just felt that as an owner, the hurdles never, never stop because you should always be focused on continuous improvement in your business because there's always room to be more efficient or um, improve quality or improve safety. There's just there's always something to, to do. And I think that's what makes the business so much fun uh, for the right for the right personality. That opens up a lot of different questions that I have for you, starting with marketing. As you said, uh, right out of the gate, you guys were kind of uh, already starting to hit that stride in your business. You got customers coming in. At any point in your business, do you take off, take your foot off the pedal of spending on marketing when you see these referrals coming in and they're not costing you really any money? Is there at any point where you take your foot off the gas in terms of spending on marketing, whether that's offline marketing or online marketing? So I, I, that, that's a fantastic question. And largely over the years, teaching workshops, when I would say that my average project size was, was sort of north of 250,000, lots of times people say, well, how did you get those projects? I've been in business for many years and I, those projects don't come my way. So the two things I always say is, first of all, you have to look like those are the projects you serve before you get them. So you know, this day and age, that's definitely, you know, how you appear on Google and online with your website um, and your social accounts. So those have to be maintained regardless of whether you're busy or not busy, because when you do get a referral, their first stop is going to be, they're going to Google you, they're going to look at your social feeds, they're going to look at your website. And what they see will determine whether or not they actually call you. The fact that they got a referral from a friend or from a neighbor um, only gets you the, the, the opportunity for them to look at your website. So it has to look like what you want your business to look like. So first off, that has to be in place and you can't ever cut corners there or, or cut back on spending just because you're busy. So that, that's first. And then second, I guess, where you could cut back if you're busy and, you've, and you're sort of self-propelled through referrals, you may not need to expend money on marketing, outbound marketing efforts like, you know, direct mail or trade shows, home shows. Um, maybe it's uh, Google ads, uh, Facebook ads, Instagram ads, th these are all great ways to raise awareness and build a brand in your market. But 
if you're already busy and your brand is established and you've got your relationships in place, you're fulfilling your sales uh, pipeline by referral, then you don't need to spend on those things. So I would say that would be, um, you know, kind of where I would cut back if, if I was um, busy enough as it, as it stands. Now, Mark, you've been in business for a while now. So that means you've experienced these market downturns. And if I was a betting man, I would say that we're obviously more than past due for one. And I thought one was coming this season, but perhaps it's coming late next season. I, I don't know. Nobody really knows. But through these market downturns, were you still getting these 200 plus thousand dollar clients? Was it a little bit more difficult to find these clients? Can you speak a little bit about how your business was able to operate during these market downturns in terms of acquiring and selling clients? Yeah, absolutely. I, so I think I went through sort of one really light recession in the sort of early 2000s and then sort of a, a heavier one around 2010 being in Canada. It was sort of a couple of years later here. Um, but in in both cases, I think the way I um, managed the business, we maintained um, revenue. And in fact, we, we continued to grow. We've, we we Our slowest growth year was 22%. So we didn't ever have a year where we, we couldn't grow um, as a result of a recession. So I'll kind of get that out of the way quick. But um, the reason I think we were able to grow during those recessions is we had extremely low overhead, um, which allowed us to bid work and make profit where others would only be recovering overhead. And I think when you really understand budgeting and you understand your costs, um, that gives you the luxury of understanding exactly where your pricing needs to be based on the, the, the revenue forecast that you have. And, and so during those years, we definitely tightened up our profit margin. Um, we didn't bid work below 10%, but we did tighten up our profit margin. And I think, you know, a combination of efficiency and low overhead allowed our pricing to, um, prevail. So I think we were able to grow during those years just simply because we were more efficient and our price was good. And we had a lot of really established relationships. And, and I think during those recessions, the best companies usually do um, grow. Um, and, and I think that's a, really just a combination of things that happen while times are good. And, and when times are, are not so good, if, if you're a well-oiled machine during the um, boom time, then you'll do extremely well in in sort of the lull in the in the market. Whereas if if you were sort of struggling during a boom to make money, you, you won't have a chance of making money when there's a when there's a sort of recession. And with that, you said that uh, for you guys, your, your overhead expenses were relatively low. What, what was the, first off, was this strategic on your end to decide to keep your overhead costs as low as possible? And what was it about your business that, that you guys were relatively lower with your overhead costs? 
So two things that like impact your overhead as a ratio to sales. One, your volume. So as your volume goes up, that ratio just naturally drops. But number two, it's the, the number of, you know, office support workers, salespeople, project managers, account managers, mechanics, all these unbillable staff that, that sort of turn up in overhead. So we, we maintained a really flat organization where we didn't have project managers and account managers, but we had sort of, um, I call them superstar foremen who are trained to manage materials, equipment, logistics, scheduling um, for themselves. So it was a very flat organization. So, you know, um, 2010, we had sort of crested to 20 million in sales and we had a 3.8% overhead in an industry where the average is 25 to 30%. So that meant I could make, you know, kind of 25% profit on a job where my competitors were just at break even paying off their overhead. So I think it was the systems, the people, the training, everything that we had built on for the sort of previous 13 years that got us into that position. And then of course we had really good relationships with architects that design for billionaire clients and billionaires spend money regardless of what's happening in the world. Um, so I think we were just, you know, perfectly prepared. Um, I, I wouldn't say it was entirely strategic. I couldn't have told you that the, you know, the stock market would crash in 2008, but it, it, it definitely, um, uh, the timing worked out really well. And I just think these sort of well-run companies that are, are laser focused on costs um, and highly efficient, just always do better um, when opportunity knocks. You talked about your, your super foreman, your superstar foreman. Did you find those people outside and recruit them into your business based on their merit, their, their experience, or were these people for the most part that you found within your, your organization already, you trained them up to be a part of your organization in that sense of taking on that job role. So it was a combination. Um, we, we definitely made more of our foreman than, than we hired. Um, and I had a policy where we would never hire a foreman that we would hire a potential foreman um, who may be a foreman in another uh, landscape company or another building trades company. Um, but they would have to come on and work with the crew with one of our other foremen for at least a year to understand how we do things, how our systems work, what our expectations are, what our production rates look like, what the expectations are um, on a daily basis in terms of communication and paperwork and that kind of thing. So, it, you know, it, it takes time to, to, to get somebody trained up to work um, as a project manager foreman, which is really what I, what ours were. They were, they came to work with work boots on and Carhartts like everybody else, but they would produce work um, all day long and, and they would have block time throughout the day to, to, to do uh, project planning, you know, uh, coordination of, of trades, um, you know, gathering information, managing material logistics, managing the equipment requirements, that kind of thing. So um, I think a lot of it was, you know, we built 
technology early on that allowed us to um, provide that opportunity to a foreman via a tablet um, so that they could, um, you know, make these things happen without, you know, phoning anybody, just more or less taking the responsibility on themselves to, to manage uh, all of the project requirements. So in your business, how did you get buy-in from your employees uh, to be able to take on these responsibilities and to, you know, feel more part of the business and its growth and to, uh, you know, yeah, like I said, take on those responsibilities. How do you, how did you get that buy-in on their part? Yeah, that's a great question. So the, the two the two things that I think drive um, you know employee engagement when it comes to, to to managing projects. First off, you have to tell them what the the goals are for the project, and most companies don't. Um, that was really why we built LMN to start with. Is we wanted to be able to say, here's the project. There's 480 man hours um, allotted. Here's the breakdown of where we think those man hours are going to go. And we want to track your time against each of those areas so that we know for ourselves whether our estimating is accurate and so that we can um, build a, a repeatable process so that foremen understand how long things should take. So we just, you know, got the buy-in by telling them what the expectations were and then using those as goals for them to measure themselves against. And, and so, you know, I've always kind of compared it to sports. If somebody's, you know, playing uh, pond hockey, they, you know, with their buddies, they'll, they'll have a good time and, and, and they'll try a bit, but, you know, they don't really care if they win or lose. Whereas, you know, take those same people from the pond and throw them in a hockey arena with, you know, thousands of fans and their girlfriends and referees and a scoreboard, and they'll almost kill each other to win. And, and so my thought is, is, you know, when we share the project hours and set a goal, that in itself um, changes the mindset from, you know, we're here to work to we're here to win. And, and I saw that firsthand as happened on its own. But then when you put um, annual bonus structure together that's tied into them getting their projects done on time. Um, and if that, if that bonus structure is, is, you know, um, you know, fairly significant, I guess we'll say, then you'll really see that entrepreneurial spirit come out on not only the foreman, but the whole crew, because they can see that there's an upside, um, to them doing, doing more in less time. And, you know, I've always tried to figure out a way to motivate people to work the way I work as an entrepreneur. And I felt like the bonus system was, was that opportunity because there's a disconnect between a business owner who, you know, wants to pay their, their staff by the hour, but get the most out of them and, and what the employees see, because, when you think about it, the employees make more money when the job takes longer and the, and the owner makes more money when the job goes faster. So you're not really aligned. And, and I think if, you're, if your incentive programs or bonuses can, can bring you into alignment where when things run well and things are efficient, everybody makes more, 
I think that's when you sort of build an entrepreneurial culture in your company. Yeah, that's incredible. And uh, talking a little bit more, you, you mentioned about a company should always be growing, whether that's growing revenue or growing profit. And I'm sure that has a lot to do with overhead expenses, but also efficiencies and identifying inefficiencies in your business and trying to pr- improve upon them. Uh, how do you, how did you identify these inefficiencies in your business, and what did you do to try to improve upon those? So the the first thing that I identified was we weren't sharing um, estimated hours with our staff in the first few years of business, um, even though that was how I was estimating. I I was building estimates based on man hours, material, equipment, and subcontractors with a markup for overhead and then a markup for profit. which is, you know, how I estimated my entire career. That's how the the LMN estimating software works. That's how the budgeting software kind of provides the markups. That's really what LMN was was designed to do. So when I decided to build the software in 2007, the reason I wanted to do that was I wanted to, to find a way to not only bid my work that way using software, but I wanted to share what the projected hours were with the people doing the work. And I wanted them to clock in and out on the phone and automatically see how many hours we bid and how many they've used and how many are left for every line item on the estimate, whether it's a landscape maintenance contract or an installation contract or a snow contract. I just wanted everybody to be laser focused on estimated versus actual hours. And that in itself drives efficient thinking. Your staff will come to you and say, hey, I'm running behind on this job and I know why. I'm running behind because we don't have the most efficient equipment possible and we don't have a good flow of material. Our supplier is consistently late. Um, The designs aren't 100% hashed out and I'm waiting for information when I get started. And so when people start coming to you and complaining as employees to the owner about why things are inefficient, that's when you know you've got a great company. And until your employees come to you day after day after day telling you why the company's inefficient, then you're going to be a one-man army trying to fight a battle that will never end. But when you get everybody doing it, that's when it becomes fun because as they're telling you these problems and you're asking for solutions, you're, you're gaining momentum and it's a flywheel effect. Once that happens and it gets moving faster and faster and faster, you start improving at a rate that is exponential because there's so many people involved and an owner can't do that for themselves. They have to engage the employees. Excellent advice. And where does LMN fit into all this as you're growing your business? Why, why did you identify this as something that your business needed? Well, I, I mean, I 2007, um, eight million in sales. Um, you know, I, I already shared by 2010 that was 20. So we we were growing super fast, and you know, my company of 20 became a company of 40, and my company of 40 became a company of 80, and it it was very hard to keep that entrepreneurial spirit 
in place as I started to scale. Um, and I thought that having technology that put this information in the hands of the foreman and any independent workers, that they could really understand for themselves if they were getting the work done on time according to plan, they could you know, manage their material requirements, their equipment requirements, they could see the whole estimate right there on their phone or tablet. And I felt that by having that level of transparency and that amount of information in the people's hands that are gonna execute the work, that we stood a much better chance of maintaining that continuous improvement uh, mindset in the organization and also kind of keep that accountability in the hands of those that are doing the work as opposed to creating a big management team that, you know, walks around carrying a big stick. It just, I didn't think that would work. I didn't like being managed that way when I was an employee. And I thought that if we um, could share information and, and, and train the staff um, that it would, uh, it would win in the end. And, and so that's, that's what, um, you know, sort of made me build software because I knew what I wanted and it didn't exist. And, and then I think, you know, as we started selling software, um, you know, and thousands and thousands of companies were subscribing with tens of thousands of employees using the software every day to, to, to do their work. What, what then happened, which is pretty exciting, was this new level of exponential improvement where we were now taking ideas from thousands of companies across North America to improve the software, drive more efficiencies, and allow every aspect of a landscape company to operate more efficiently. So that was pretty cool because I feel like that level of exponential thinking um, created huge improvement for, for me and my own landscape company along the way. Yeah, it's definitely a, a very impressive software for this industry and the features that it has, you know, so many benefits to any type of landscaping business. And we talked about that a lot in episode 12 of this podcast. So if you want to go back to that, uh, listen in, there's a deeper dive on those features. But I want to get into landscape disruptors and what you got going on over there, Mark. Can you give our audience who may not know uh, what this is and what platform you're building over there a little bit of a rundown about it? Yeah, so landscape disruptors was something that, you know, over the years, I've gotten to know many um, influential people in the industry, lots of great consultants, lots of incredible contractors that just have really, really wicked stories that need to be shared. And so the, the, the idea there was, let's just build a, a, a location for landscapers to go and, and just hear from others, get some fresh ideas, see what's happening, what's new in the industry, and, and you know, really just kind of become a, a giant peer network where, you know, you, you create um, a conduit for sharing and, and, um, and networking. And, and that's really all it is. Um, how do we do it? It's, it's really, you know, through blogs, webinars, and, and podcasts, and, 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 you know, it's been overwhelming to see how quickly uh, the community's growing and, and, you know, just how many people are involved. Um, so 
definitely, uh, you know, when you check it out, if, if you do check it out, um, you'll notice that, you know, it's, it's hard to recognize um, kind of who's leading it because there's just so many people involved. And, and that was really the goal. It, 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 it wasn't meant to be about LMN or about me. It's, it's more all of these other great stories and, and, and great resources that, that I just keep stumbling across in my, uh, in my travels. It's definitely a great resource and in an industry that needs uh, a lot of content and to help people grow their businesses. So uh, thank you for putting that together. That's Landscape Disruptors on any podcast app, as well as landscapedisruptors.com. And Mark, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day and joining me here for this episode. Is there anything else that you want to get across to our listeners before we close out this interview? And where do you want them to go to check you out? Uh, no, I, th- that's all for today. So I really appreciate you having me and they can uh, check us out at golmn.com or they can always find me, Mark Bradley on LinkedIn. Thank you for listening to today's podcast episode. Visit us at howtohardscape.com for more information on the subject and let us know what you want to learn about in future episodes by reaching out to us on our social channels. We're at howtohardscape on Facebook and Instagram or contact at howtohardscape.com for an email. We'd love it if you subscribe to this podcast, left us a rating and review if you're on Apple. This really helps us get this podcast out there and into more people's ears as well to attract some great guests that we've had on the show and future great guests that we hope to have on the show. We look forward to meeting with you next week on the How to Hardscape podcast.